So, if you've never been to RUF before, let me just tell you, RUF is uh, one of the campus ministry groups here at Belmont. I've been working with students here going on now 16 years. Um, enjoy it very much. I don't presume that everybody that comes out to RUF um, is on the same page at all as far as where they're at with God, where they're at. Some of you have grown up in Christian families, and that's probably the biggest barrier to be, being a Christian. Um, others haven't grown up in that kind of background, and either are interested or not interested, or I guess you're at least mildly interested if you're here. Um, whenever I think about standing up and opening up the Word of God, I think in terms of this is orientation to reality. At least that's the way the, the Bible thinks of itself. It's not now's the time to check out of reality and come talk about spiritual things, which is a whole different kind of way of being and thinking. No, we believe that all of life is spiritual. We also believe that... Um, you know, that there are lots of things that the Bible say that are difficult. And this book that we've been looking at this whole semester is a letter that was written to some Christians of Jewish background who lived in Rome in the first century. It was a pretty small group, and they were uh, suffering persecution. We know that they had been expelled from Rome because they were Christians. Their property had been confiscated, uh, and then they had been allowed back into Rome and now Nero is on the throne, and he's about to initiate a really intense persecution where many Christians are going to be put to death in really horrible ways. One of the things Nero was famous for doing was dipping Christians in tar, putting them up on big stakes in his garden, and lighting them on fire to be torches for his garden parties. And so the writer actually talks about this. He, he writes this letter to this church, encouraging them to not lose heart. And one of the things that is a danger is that these people are in danger of saying, well, if this is what it means to be a Christian, then I don't want to have anything to do with this. So this whole letter is really a hard thing. But I think it's, it's actually pretty realistic because the fact is being a Christian does not make you immune from suffering in the world, first of all, but it also sometimes brings unique suffering. So there are a lot of reasons for becoming a Christian, a lot of reasons for not wanting to become a Christian. But I will tell you this, trying to avoid suffering is not a good reason to become a Christian. Because in fact, what the Bible says is that becoming a Christian and following Jesus almost, uh, often brings new suffering into your life. But it also brings the hope that suffering can have meaning, and find a place even within God's plan. And that's what these Hebrews are being asked to consider and to ponder. In some ways, I would say the book of Hebrews is written to reinvigorate the imagination of a group of people who have lost hope. Because it's not just that persecution is difficult. It's that persecution threatens to constrict the imagination. In other words, when you are enduring persecution, it's difficult to think about anything else other than just let it stop. And the writer of the Hebrew says, no, you need to understand that this persecution does not define you. That God's purposes for you are bigger than even this persecution. Even this persecution finds its place in God's purposes. 
So this is not an easy letter. This is not one of those kind of passages that you turn to, I guess, if you want to grow your church. But in some ways, maybe it is the kind of passage that we should look to. Because I think there are a lot of people that have been sort of treated to sort of a bait and switch when it comes to Christianity. The idea that if you become a Christian, everything will be wonderful is not what the Bible teaches. And the book of Hebrews is a very sobering book. And I think one of the reasons that I think I find it plausible to believe in Christianity is because Christianity didn't excise a book like the book of Hebrews out of the Bible. The more I read things that are weird and uncomfortable in the Bible, it actually gives me a sense that the people that put this together did not feel like they had the right to pick and choose the things that they liked and get rid of the things they didn't like. As St. Augustine is famous for saying one time, if you believe in the gospel and reject the things in the gospel you don't like, it's not really the gospel you believe, it's yourself. And there are a lot of people, a lot of them in the church, um, who in, in, in honesty, all honesty, love to pick and choose the things they like. Um, they'll say, well, you know, I really like these verses, or I, my, my God is not like that. It's like, you know, when we come to the book of Hebrews, we're confronted with a book, even this, this chapter, that says some things that maybe some of you here tonight, including me, would rather get cut out of the Bible. For instance, a lot of people are like, I don't like all this you know, stuff about sin. And the very first verse is about sin. And then other people be like, I don't like the idea that God is scary and is mad at people. Like that's, I just don't like that idea of God. And yet Hebrews 12, a lot of people think that that's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is full of loving God, you know, who says they're there and wants to comfort us all the time. And yet the end of chapter 12 here, as we're going to see, is our God is a consuming fire. That's not in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. So this is one of those passages where uh, I'm not going to apologize for it, but I'm going to empathize with you if there are things in here that you don't like, because there are things here that I don't like, and particularly uh, the idea that suffering may even be something God wants to use in your life. So with that, I guess as a sobering intro, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. It starts this way. And you remember chapter 11 talked about all these people who by faith had done this and done that and had suffered this and suffered that. So that's where chapter 12 verse 1 is picking up on that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point, not yet, of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten The word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? 
If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And one of the great understatements in all the Bible, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, he's quoting an Old Testament story that they'd be familiar with. Afterwards, as you know, when Esau wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So he's contrasting Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. Frightening. Even Moses was frightened. But he says, you've not come to that. You've come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, meaning at the Old Testament giving of the law, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, again, the quote from the Old Testament, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now there's a lot there, and I don't have enough time to go through all these verses, but let me just try and and pick up the major points of this passage, okay? The, The point, again, is these people are in danger of growing weary and losing heart. And this letter, this word of encouragement to them includes a number of things. I want you to understand it does not just say, do this. I think a lot of people have been, um, have been misled by bad Christian teaching that gives the impression that Christianity is just a bunch of rules. But I would submit to you, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll find that it never gives bare commands. God never just says, do this, 
period. Even in this chapter where there are lots of things about don't lose heart, don't refuse him who speaks, it's all connected to who God is and what he's done. It's always anchored in something. Whenever the the Bible says you should do this, it's anchored in something about who God is, who he made you to be, and what he's done. Which is to say, grace, God's grace, always comes first. And you see this here. It says to throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And you have to realize when you come into this this walk or this journey of following Jesus and trying to understand what does it mean to live as a Christian, which Christians would say is what you were made for, you're, you're entering into a race that's been marked out for you. You're not necessarily just making it up as you go along. That Christianity, as a matter of fact, the first Christians, do you know what they were called? They were called people of the way. Which is really interesting because today, when you think about Christianity, you probably think of it mostly as a system of ideas. And most Christians are people who think that they believe these ideas and not these ideas. But actually, the earliest Christians were regarded as people of the way. The people that first called them Christians were persecutors who called them Christians in a derogatory way. Christians was never a badge of honor. It was something, it was a put down. It was a, um, it was a, a slur, a slander. The Christians themselves called themselves people of the way because they understood that Christianity is not just about ideas. It's about living a particular way. Now that way is rooted in things that actually happened. Christianity proclaims first and foremost that something happened. Jesus, God, took on human flesh, lived among us, and died and was resurrected again, came back to life. And the Bible seeks to explain what that means and why that's such a big deal. And because of that, there's a particular way of living that makes sense. Really only one way of living that makes sense. So Romans 12.1 puts it this way, in view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your only uh, logicon is the Greek word, which can mean either reasonable or spiritual act of worship. In other words, the only way that really makes sense in view of the mercies of God is to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. So there is a way, a race, and we're to persevere in it, not just so that God can feel good about himself, hey, I got these people to, to stick with the plan, but because it's what you were made for. Christianity, what the book of Hebrews has been talking about the whole time, is that God made you to be in a rich relationship with him. Not just to be his little worker bee. And when that went wrong, when Adam and Eve turned away, when mankind turned away from God and didn't want to live in the way God said, I made you to live, then everything fell apart. Brokenness came into every aspect of life. And yet God didn't just sit up there and say, well, I told them they should have listened to me. No, he sends his only begotten son to come to become the man of sorrows, to experience firsthand the brokenness, to become, as the one at the book of Hebrews says, the high priest who can fully empathize with our weakness because he's been tempted in every way just as we have. And he has suffered just as we do. 
And that's what God did. That's how much God loved his people. And that's how committed God was to restoring this relationship. And so the book of Hebrews says that what God has done through Jesus has opened a new and a living way so that we can have this fellowship, this relationship with him that we were made for, right? So this race that's marked out for us basically means don't turn back from what you were made for. If you're trying to live your life apart from God, the Bible says eventually eventually things will start to break down. It's, 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 it's what the Bible says about this, right? So what are we to do? How are we to, to, mark, to run this race? And the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But it doesn't just say that. It goes on to describe what in particular should encourage us when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And what is it? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. If you would seek to persevere, if you would seek to live as a son and a daughter of God, understand first and foremost what it meant for the only begotten son of God to run the race. And it meant for him to run to a cross. He did not enjoy the cross but he endured the cross for the joy that was on the other side of it. And one of the things that the Hebrews have got to wrestle with is, do I want to use God as a means to an end? Or am I willing to embrace God and everything he brings to me? And that's a question everybody in this world has to wrestle with. In other words, do I want God so that I can get happiness? And then what happens when he doesn't bring me the happiness I want? And that's what's going on here. There's like, listen, Jesus endured a cross for the joy set before him. He didn't pursue joy and then, oh, dang it, there's a cross, right? And now it's derailed me and, you know, maybe I'm going to try and remember the happy times and try and persevere. No, the joy is before him, but the only way he gets to it is a cross. The only way that he gets to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb at his wedding feast with his bride is if he endures a cross so that his bride can be cleansed of every spot. And he says, it's worth it. And the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, if you want to persevere, you need to fix your heart on the choice that Jesus made. Because everything in your heart wants to say, I'm not worth it. I wouldn't do that for me. I wouldn't do that for anybody. The writer of Hebrews says, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. You need to consider. That, that's an accounting term. Got any accounting majors in here? That's an accounting term. It means count up your suffering and count up the suffering of Jesus and compare the two. Consider the suffering. Consider that Jesus did not have to endure a cross. But for the joy set before him, the the. the uh, book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, tells us a little bit about what this joy is. The joy is him being able to ransom for himself a people that, that the book of Isaiah refers to as almost the spoil of his victory over death. So the joy set before him is not, oh good, the cross is over. It's, I would rather die than live without you. And through the cross, he's able to redeem for himself a people who had no hope otherwise. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you want to persevere, if you're struggling to lose heart, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. You need to think that when Jesus had the opportunity to say enough of this cross stuff, 
because she's just not worth it. He's just not worth it. He sat down, he considered the cost, and he said, for the joy set before me, the joy of having this one as mine, I will endure the cross no matter what it takes, no matter how shameful and horrible it is, I will endure it. And when you're struggling to persevere, the Bible says you need to kind of go through the same calculation that Jesus did. And you need to say, what was it? What was it that caused Jesus to endure this cross? What does it mean to fix my eyes on him and to consider, to consider, or some translations say, to reckon with what he did? So that's the first part. Look at Jesus. Consider him. I, I like the way Philip Hughes, he's a, old te- or a New Testament scholar, who says this, to, to, to consider him, lest we lose heart, means to make a careful reckoning, counting up by comparing his suffering to what you're enduring. Now that doesn't mean that your suffering is trivialized. It doesn't mean that. But it, your suffering should actually be a doorway for you to understand that the sufferings of Jesus are really beyond what you can imagine. See, it's one thing for you to walk through the world and see brokenness and become enraged and say it shouldn't be this way, right? It was a whole nother thing, a whole nother level for Jesus, for Jesus to walk around and see this creation that he had made so beautiful, so open. And now people want to kill him, crucify him, run away from him, I love, you know, there's one place in the magician's nephew where Aslan, you know, mourns um, man and the son of man who basically wants to protect himself from everything that would do him good. So Jesus didn't just walk around and say, well, okay, you guys are off my list. You know, my naughty, you're on my naughty list, you know. Um, no, Jesus went around with a broken heart all the time, a broken heart that you can't even begin to imagine. So we're to consider this Jesus. There's real spiritual value in carefully reckoning or counting up what Jesus suffered. Um, It is is worth, for instance, considering how lonely his life was. You may think you're lonely, and I would tell you, you don't know lonely until you're 33 years old and you're still not married like I was. But I will tell you, that's nothing compared to what Jesus experienced. It's just the beginning. In the, um, in the ancient Christian worship, there's actually a thing called the Great Litany. Litany means list. And in the Great Litany, which is a prayer that often was used during the procession uh, in, the, in the medieval period, Christians would process in and they would um, say this prayer. And I put a, f- a little bit of it here because I think this is, is worth thinking. Because what we used to do in worship, uh, this guy Rodney Clapp says that worship is practice and seeing through common sense. That worship is an opportunity for you to have your imagination opened up to other possibilities. That maybe there is a way to live that's not just about you tooting your own horn all the time. But anyway, in in this great litany, listen to this. I I put some of this on here. This was the prayer. This dates probably from around the 8th century. Preserve us, gracious Lord and God, by all the merits of thy life, by thy human birth and circumcision. Did you ever think about why Jesus was circumcised, why his flesh was cut on the eighth day. Circumcision is a cleansing ritual that speaks of hope in God's promise to cleanse his people from their sin. 
And yet Jesus didn't need to be cleansed. He was without sin. He was circumcised because he was taking the place of his people. So his suffering didn't begin on the cross, guys. As an eight-day-old infant, he was cut. And it wasn't because he needed to be. And so in this ancient prayer, Christians were to ponder and think about, he was cut as an eight-day-old baby. He was born in a manger, in a shameful, dirty place. Even though he was the king of creation. Consider that. Count that up. Think about this. By, uh, the prayer goes on. By thine obedience, courage, and faithfulness. By thy humility, meekness, and patience. By thy extreme poverty. Did you ever think about Jesus' poverty? Like he wasn't just saying a cool little thing when he said the foxes have you know, holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Like he literally didn't have a place to live. And when he died, all he had was a cloak. Okay? So Jesus knew what it was to be poor. And he was poor because he was living the life that we deserved because of our sin. It says, by thy extreme poverty, by thy baptism, fasting and temptation, by thy griefs and sorrows, by thy prayers and tears, by thy having been despised and rejected, by thy agony and bloody sweat, by thy bonds and scourging. That means being whipped, right? By thy crown of thorns, by thy cross and death. And it goes on and on and on because it says, you know what, you should consider every one of those things. In every one of those things, there is rich spiritual nourishment to help you along the way. To understand what it meant for Jesus to love you. This is what it meant for Jesus to love you. Consider that when you're tempted to lose heart. And then the sex thing that the, that, um, that the writer says here as far as how to, how to not grow weary. The first is fix your eyes on Jesus. The second is revise your idea of what it feels like to be a son or a daughter of God. Now I will say for a lot of people who've grown up in Christian churches... They may have gotten this idea that when I accept Jesus into my heart, now he's my friend. And now God isn't mad at me anymore and I won't have to go to hell. But I will tell you that really the ultimate thing that the Bible promises for those who come to God through Christ is that they will be brought into his very family. In other words, as this um, great theologian J.I. Packer put it one time, you can tell a lot about how much somebody understands real Christianity from how much they make of the idea that they are God's adopted child. If the idea that they're God's adopted child is not what animates their prayers and why they do what they do, then they really don't understand Christianity as much as they think they do. So in other words, if you think that being a Christian means that I try to be a better person and I try to go to church and read my Bible... Um, but you don't ever really think in terms of I'm a child of God because Jesus lived and died in my place and secured adoption for me and sealed me with his Holy Spirit. If those aren't the kinds of things that animate your very being, then you may not understand Christianity very well. And I hope you'll stick around RUF because I, I think you would be really surprised at what, how good the good news really is. And for a lot of you who've grown up in churches, that's really what you need to hear. But for others of you, you're like, well, of course I'm a child of God. Why wouldn't God want me to be his child? Um, and you may, even in that, have some assumptions about what being a child of God means that may actually be wrong. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Okay, you're God's children. 
Let me tell you something. Do you remember what God said a long time ago? You might have forgotten this. Because right now you're really wondering. You're really in sort of this sort of disorientation. Persecution sometimes brings this disorientation. You don't know what side is up. And what it's really threatening to do for the Hebrews is to make them feel like, well, we're not God's children. If we're God's children, then we wouldn't be suffering. You know this guy, Steve Taylor? He's you know, directed the Blue Light Jazz movie. Um, he's got, he did a record years ago called Squint. Um, I just think it's one of the greatest records ever. Did you know this record? Somebody knows this record. Hallelujah. Um, if Caleb Bumball would be here, he, he's, he would know about this record. Well, anyway, he's got, he's got a great song on there about sort of this kind of ridiculous heresy that if you have enough faith that you'll be rich and God will make sure you never suffer and never get sick or anything like that. It's heresy if you weren't sure about my position on that. It's heresy. Well, um, he's got this great line, and, it, and, it, and the whole song, it's basically like an auctioneer sort of rattling off, you know, remember, you know, gather around children, I'll tell you a story about the good old days, you know, when we had satellites and we had, you know, and, and he's got this one line in there I always love. It says, we're king's kids, damn it, and we used to know what a housekeeper was for. I just love that line, you know? Like, if that's your idea of Christianity, I'm a king's kid and I should know what a housekeeper's for. I should have one or two or three because that's what it means to be a king's kid. Then you're sadly mistaken. And Hebrews chapter 12 is here to disavow you of your heresy. Because Hebrews 12 says what it means to be a sign, the sign that you're a true child is not a lack of suffering, but suffering. That if you have no suffering in your life whatsoever, you should be asking whether you really are a child of God. Why? Because suffering means God cares. Now what's presupposed in that? What's presupposed in that is that you need to change. What's presupposed in that is you need to change. And God loves you so much that he's committed to changing you. Even if it might provoke your anger and your confusion. Have you ever tried to love somebody that just would not accept your love? And and wanted to slug you? Maybe did? then maybe you can begin to understand the heart of God a little bit. Because God is one who loves you so much that he has to interfere in your life. Now, do you see how, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to turn this upside down? Your assumption is, if God loved me, he wouldn't make me suffer. But part of that assumption is, I don't need to change very much. Maybe a little bit around the edges, but all he really has to do is tell me what to do. I'll, I'll change. No, God says your need for change is so deep and so rooted in your very being that massive surgery is needed. And surgery hurts. Now, this is not the only passage in the Bible about suffering. And it does, the, the Bible says lots of things about suffering. And one of the things it says is that you, sh- you should not make a quick, easy connection between I'm suffering, therefore I've sinned in this particular way, and that's the end of it, I figured it out. Suffering is more mysterious than this. But you should understand that part of the role of suffering is because God wants to heal you. Look at that in verse 13, right? Verse 12, start with that. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Right? 
Look at verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you need to revise your idea of what it feels like to be a son. All I can tell you is the most insecure students that I've ever known, the people who really wondered whether their parents loved them or anybody loved them, were always the kids who weren't disciplined. Always. I remember one time, you know, seeing one of these silly talk shows back, back, in, the, back in the day before Oprah, the Phil Donahue show, so I know I'm dating myself. But I, I remember there was this silly supermodel girl on there, and she talked about how she had built basically this padded room for her toddler so that he wouldn't have to have any limits placed on him whatsoever. Like basically, let's like build this room where he can just run around like a crazy little boy with no limits whatsoever. And I thought, boy, that kid is going to grow up screwed up. Because I'm just telling you, the most insecure people I know were the people who never had proof of their parents' love because their parents dared to interfere and say, no, you can't do that. If your parents said, never said, no, you can't do that, it makes you forever wonder if they really cared. Do you understand that about God? Like you may think, I want God to leave me alone and let me just do what I want. But if he did, believe me, you would, you would struggle to believe that he loves you. And you should. Because what kind of loving God, seeing that we're as screwed up and broken as we are, would just leave us to our own devices and say, well, that's it. If you don't like, if you don't like me interfering, I'll just, I'll just hang out back here. And when you sort of figure out what to do, then come to me and you know, we'll hang out together. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not Christianity. Right? So they need to revise what it means to be a child of God. Then they need a community. But what this passage particularly mentions is they need to tend to their community. And you might not get that here. But when it's saying things like um, make every effort, verse 14, to live in peace with all men and be holy. Verse 15, see to it that no one misses the grace. That's a... That's a um, a corporate command. He's saying all of you take responsibility to see that no one of you misses the grace of God. And then he gives this example of Esau who basically threw away all of the blessings of God for a single meal. Ridiculous. But what, what it's saying is if you throw away God's grace, you're, as, you're basically as foolish as Esau. And you need a community to help you remember that. You're not sufficient to properly value the most important things in this world. You need the input of others. You need a community to help you remember what really matters. And it's important that this community be strong. So if somebody is wreaking havoc in the midst of this community, right? Someone is what we would call a bitter root who's going around gossiping, dividing, breaking you know, this community and the trust in this community, that's a serious deal. Because this community is vital for you to run this race. And so don't just turn your head and say, well, you know, I, I can't confront them. They might be mad at me. If you understand how much you need a community and you understand how much you need this community to be strong, then you would understand that sometimes you have to confront and deal with brokenness in the midst of your community. Does you see how that? It's not just saying, oh, if somebody stumbles into sexual morality, get rid of them. 
No, it's saying you as a community have a corporate concern for every one of you. If one of you is weak and is broken and is falling or has fallen into bitterness, then you as the community need to tend to that because you need each other. It's a hard thing in our day and age. You see, we we sort of are pursuing two things at once in our culture that I think bring great havoc in your life. For so many of us want to, want to pursue community. We think we really want it, but we also want independence and we want to be free to do what we want when we want. And in a lot of ways, the motto is stay, if you stay uncommitted, you stay free and you won't miss out on something that could be better that's going on. And the fact is, you can't live life that way. To the degree that you're in any kind of real relationship, whether it's friends or dating or marriage or whatever it is, you can only be in a real relationship to the degree that you sacrifice your independence. And so we have a culture that basically says, you know, just do it. (laughs) At the same time, community really matters, but the two can never go together. And if you're committed basically to to not making waves, well, you really can't have much of a community. So a wise pastor, mentor of mine said one time, intimacy comes through conflict, not through avoiding it. And I wish people in the South and people in the Christian church understood that. Finally, remember who we worship. And this is like, whoa, our God is a consuming fire. Why bring up all this frightening stuff about the Old Testament? And then he says, yeah, but in a lot of ways, like that's still the God we worship. Awe is appropriate. Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, was terrifying even for Moses. So we must not trivialize God. Must not trivialize God. But listen, we come now to Mount Zion to Jesus, the mediator, which means the go-between, whose sprinkled blood speaks cleansing rather than guilt. See, Abel's blood cried out after he'd been murdered. His, his blood cried out his guilt. The blood that we have that speaks for us is the blood of Jesus that sprinkles our consciences and cleanses our guilt. That's why it's better blood. And we better get used to gazing at Jesus because it's where we're headed. It's what we're about We're receiving a kingdom, he says, that cannot be shaken. And that's a great way for us to end the semester because, you see, the Romans, the Romans with all their persecution thought if there was any unshakable kingdom, it was theirs. And if you had been part of this group that this little letter was written to, maybe a group as small, probably smaller than the people here tonight, received this letter in light of like the Roman Colosseum, and we got the chance to go to Rome this summer and see some of that stuff. Like Roman architecture is all about intimidation. And you've got this little group of people, and the writer of the Hebrew says, you're receiving an unshakable kingdom. And all that other stuff you see, it's going to get shaken and it's going to pass away. You have a failure of imagination if you think that Rome and its might defines reality. Because I'm going to wipe them away. And within a couple hundred years, the Roman Empire was gone. And Christianity had become it. Now, that had its problems for Christianity too. But who could have predicted that? Who could have predicted that? There have an unshakable kingdom, right? There's a beautiful picture in the book of Revelation of the city, right? This enduring city that's coming. It's been well said that the Bible, the story of the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a city. Not just back to nature, guys, but a city. 
human cultivated reality. And it's a city whose gates are always open. You know what's remarkable about that? The purpose of a city and city walls and gates in these times was security. You lock up the gate because it's a big, bad, dangerous world. And if you're inside the city, you're safe. But the city of God is so secure and so solid that the gates never have to close. Let your heart get around that. That your future, if you've put your hope in Christ, is an unshakable kingdom and a city that they don't even need to close the gates. Let that change the way you live. My favorite story about this, I'll I'll close with this story, is uh, about Czechoslovakia. And maybe I've used this story before because it's one of my favorites. I probably have. But um, there's this guy, Václav Havel. And Václav Havel was the president, of, the first president of the Czech Republic after they overthrew the communists. And he was asked one time, how was it that they were able to overthrow communism in Czechoslovakia in what's called the Velvet Revolution? Because there were no shots, there was no bloodshed. And not only that, it's had staying power when so many of the other um, revolutions to overthrow communism are unraveling. And what's interesting, Václav Havel is a Christian and he was also a playwright. And he talks about the days during communism. And he says that for years, we had, we mean the Christians, had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out in the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. I met a guy once, Hughes Oliphant Old. He's probably the greatest um, historian of the worship of the Reformation who's ever lived since the Reformation. <laughs> Except I heard him introduced one time at a conference saying the only person to be qualified to make that judgment would be him. And he would never say that about himself. But nonetheless, it's true. And he talked about um, meeting uh, the patriarch of, I forget which branch of the Orthodox Church, Um, But when he was doing research, he had met this guy and they were talking. And this guy, literally, this patriarch, had been an Orthodox priest in Czechoslovakia, preached a sermon on the walls of Jericho. And the people got so fired up that they marched out of his church and camped around Ceausescu's palace and wouldn't leave. And he left. And communism was over. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Something happens when you can know the truth so well. I'm receiving an unshakable kingdom. Do what you want to my body. Burn me in in, in the garden if you want. But I've got an unshakable kingdom. And God is still on the throne. And he is making all things right. And he's bringing a city that will endure. And all of this stuff is passing away, right? When we gather for RUF, it's not just that you can have a little inspirational talk. I'm hoping that your world is transformed. I'm hoping that your imagination explodes because, guys, I think one of the great tragedies is we limit God to what we can imagine he could do. So the Bible proclaims that that he can do so much more than we can ask or imagine. I know a lot of you are pretty creative. Don't ever limit God to what you can imagine. Because he's got even more in store. Let's pray together.